0: Let me explain to you what I'm going to read in Matthew chapter 14, just at the end, and then in through 15, verse 20, and get you up to speed, and then we'll look at it together as we consider Scripture this morning. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. He was an eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus, a follower of him, and he was compelled by the Spirit of God to write down an account of who Jesus was and what he accomplished on our behalf. The things that he's focused on is the way that Jesus so Amazingly fulfilled all of the prophets of the Old Testament. That what Israel had longed for has come to fruition in Jesus. He is the true and better king who was promised for those who were waiting. And then, more than that, Jesus' own words, his teaching has taught us what the kingdom of heaven that's crashing in is going to be like. To testify to both king and kingdom, Jesus has been on a mission. He is healing and casting out demons. And especially in chapter 14, some of the greatest powers of Jesus are on display. He takes very small amounts of food, just a couple of loaves and some fish, and feeds thousands. And following that episode, he walks on a stormy sea. And if it's not enough just to walk on the sea, but he commands it to be quiet and it's still And now we pick up this power demonstration of Jesus at the end of 14, and what we're going to see is that the establishment, if you want to call it that of the day, responds. They take notice. The question is, how do they respond to the king who has come, to a kingdom that is unfolding with power? And we're going to see again how they miss it at the start of chapter 15. So this is the 34th verse of Matthew 14. If you have a Bible with you, I'd love for you to Follow along. If you need one, there should be a black hardcover one right in front of you. But let's look at the 14th chapter just right at the end. I'm just going to read the last two verses and then the beginning of 15. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. Remember, they had just come across the sea. Jesus had walked on water, and now they're on land. It says, when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick. And implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, But their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you still, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Let's pray for a moment. God, we thank you for the gift to be gathered in your presence we thank you for the testimony of the church down through the ages. And a confession that we share with your people is that your word is not void, not empty, but living and active. And I would ask, Holy Spirit, that you would make that our experience today. Do what we cannot do for ourselves. Take this truth, these words, this breath of God itself and animate us. We want to be those who have understanding. We want to hear and understand, to see and perceive. I also ask that what is seen, what is heard, that we would not be forgetful. That we would have courage, grace to walk in what we've seen and heard. We need your help for this, so we pray for it now in Jesus' name. Amen. I have an older brother and a younger sister. And in the summer times, when school is not going, it is a task of every good set of siblings to try to figure out how you're going to spend the time. You either learn it by instinct because of your love of competition or the outdoors, or you learn of it by force, by parents who say, I don't want to see or hear you anymore do something Constructive. So one of the things that would often happen in my home for my brother and my sister is that we would bust out board games. Now, I know that board games have become very niche and very nerdy these days. In fact, I have someone in my own family who, when they go to play a board game, have a self-created spreadsheet in their phone. And they can tell you every time they played that game and who they played it with and what the average high score is, what the average middle score is, what the average losing score is, creates... Jackets for the cards, like I used to collect baseball cards or something. So I know that there's that world of board games, but back when I was a child, we partook in something more pure, something more simple. We played Monopoly. (laughs) And sometimes Monopoly went for days on end. I think the personal family Olam record for one Monopoly game set on a card table in the back room was six days playing the same game. Now you might say, how is it possible that you could play one Monopoly game for six days? And what I want to suggest to you is because that over the course of time, everyone has forgotten how to play Monopoly. Have you ever seen a Monopoly rule book? Have you ever looked it up? It turns out that in fact, people who are playing this game have added to and expanded and reinterpreted the rules of monopoly with a set of things, sometimes glorious and fun, other times absolutely offensive. These things are called house rules. And we had a set of house rules that served to perpetuate the game, though we did not know it. You see, it was far more fun to collect money from free parking at any time we wanted it is more fun to create new rules about getting out of jail. It's, new, it's way more fun to ignore mortgaging so you got to keep the things that you had. We created an unplayable game. And my guess is that many of you have had this experience that when you go to play with someone else, you find it awkward and difficult because they will at any time control the game like a mafia leader And pull out of their pockets some reason why what happened ought to benefit them and not you. This is them applying their house rules. Now I know you've heard a teaching from the Bible or two. You've attended a sermon. So I probably don't need to spell this out. But bear with me for a moment while I do. Like a creator of a game. Given for the good and benefit of those who are there. There is a set of rules. They do exist. They are important and they matter. But many people have ruined the game and made it difficult, oftentimes for their own benefit and control. I admit and confess that my older brother and I would make up rules sometimes in the middle of the game to take my little sister's money. (laughs) Like is often the case with those who desire to shift and in the spirit of the game make it better, there are often house rules that serve to control and enrich. In the same way, this is when we make the transition, we get spiritual on this thing, What Jesus is going to show us and what he accuses the Pharisees and scribes of is taking this practice of the worship of God, this coming into his presence, this communing with him with a set of rules. They're important. There's going to be some tension this morning as we talk about this because I'm going to talk about man-made religion and it's going to be tempting to fall into one ditch which said, yeah, no rules. Oh no, there's a rule book. Things happen when you pass go. But what has happened is that those who are in control, those who run the house, have expanded, changed, reinterpreted the game in such a way that it benefits themselves, often keeps others under control, and eventually makes it so that you're not able to continue on playing at all. That is what happens in light of Jesus' power at the end of Matthew 14. So here's what I want to do to get to this idea. I'm going to go back through the text because there's some things that are a little odd. What's he talking about not caring for your mom and dad and how does that function and about hand washing? So I want to explain the characters and the context. And then I want to confront and help us to see the shape and seriousness of man-made religion. Because Jesus is adamant that it is something that should be taken seriously. And I think it has some shapes to it, some contours that we want to look at. So we're going to consider the shape and the seriousness of man-made traditions and then reflect on and attempt to get to the heart of true worship. So that's our goal. Let's start back at the top. The end of Matthew 14 is magnificent in its scope. Jesus is so powerful that having crossed over a raging sea and walking on its surface, he comes to a region and his fame spreads so far that those who had been sick and ill for likely generations could come and merely touch the fringe of his garment and be made well. This is the power of heaven made manifest on earth. This is everything that has been promised from Abraham forward. This is the prophet's imagination through the breath of the Spirit made real. And in response to this, the leaders of Israel who were longing for these things, they come and say, we need to investigate. And I want you to note something. In light of God's kingdom having crashed into the world, what should the leaders of the house say? You might imagine them rushing in and breaking out in songs like the elderly in the temple when Jesus is born. But instead, and I think we're supposed to see this contrast, instead they show up and they begin to complain and nitpick and try to control. They've come not to worship Jesus, who embodies all the power that they've longed for forever, but instead to confront him. They come and miss the point entirely. Jesus is healing everyone to the point where there is hope in this world. And they come into the midst of that party and say, "Um, yeah, but did you wash your hands correctly? And I think we're supposed to see this as absolutely sort of off-putting, like a stench sticking out like a sore thumb like what how are they so good at missing the point they are majoring on the minors and unable to see Jesus before them this is going to be one shape of man-made religion we're going to look at in a minute but those who came from Jerusalem miss the point entirely the fact that they came from Jerusalem seems to be significant because like most areas of organization where there is an insistence on purity, they began to infight amongst themselves. So one commentary noted that though there were uh, from this area different scribes or Pharisees, that they were often looked down upon as being sort of backward and perhaps heterodox. In other words, yeah, they were Pharisees, but not Pharisee enough. And if this doesn't explain just the way almost every organization goes, sure, you're one of us, but are you really not enough? It's also likely they had to come from Jerusalem because they would have carried more weight or authority with them, and Jesus was a big enough deal now that he needed to be dealt with. It's also possible they came from Jerusalem because I'm not an expert in these things, but I've read a couple people who at least purport to be experts, and they say that much of this nonsense about hand-washing, though it turns out to be sanitary, was developed very close to the time that Jesus was living. In other words, this was not a long-stayed tradition, but a new one. And so they had to come from Jerusalem to tell all these people out in the sticks what's new and hip. Where I grew up, it took about 8 to 10 years for anything cool to reach us. Like I was, you know, graduating high school and we just discovered Nintendo or something. I mean, I'm not, I'm kind of joking, but barely. Fashion, uh, we, things on TV looked so foreign, they might as well have been aliens to us. And then two years later, you saw kids wearing the same stuff. It's possible the Pharisees came from Jerusalem because out there in Galilee, they didn't have the latest update. They were still running Windows 95. And they, the powers that be needed to come out and tell them, hey, just so you know, uh, God cares about this now and he cares about it a lot. And we're here to make sure that you know that. So you should thank us. And in response to their question, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Jesus does something that he often does in response to those who have no right to be in authority over him. He asks them a question back. And his question is accusing. He says to them, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Those are fighting words. And then he gives an example. What do people say he brings receipts or something, he he has an example. He says, God commanded, honor your father and mother. This is one of the basic Ten Commandments, number five, it's very clear. And whoever reviles father and mother must surely die, which is an interpretation or an application of this command from Moses. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. He says, for the sake of that tradition, you have made void the word of God. Now, this takes a bit of explanation. Mark's gospel describes this, and he says that Jesus names the law. It's a law of Corbin. Corbin laws were a set of rules and laws added by Pharisees and scribes in oral tradition, sometimes written down, that had to do with vows and money. Corbin laws indicated that a person ought to Vow all that they have, all that they earn, and all that they would leave behind to the temple. And so Pharisees would lead people in a very strict vow before God. However, in making this vow, there was a loophole. Doesn't this start to sound like Monopoly house rules? There's a loophole. The person who is desired or who is asked to make this vow before God to give all that they have, all that they will earn, and all that they leave behind to the temple could still make use of and continue to live exactly as they were living, even having made the vow. So what ended up happening is that this is a vow, a solemn, holy vow of righteousness, wherein the person making the vow could get all the kudos of being a righteous person. Meanwhile, the only people affected were their loved ones. And what happens is is that in light of this, a person who made a vow like this, according to Corbin laws, in pharisaical tradition, in the Mishnah it was called, they would encounter situations where one or both of their parents would fall ill, where they were starving, were not able to support themselves, did not have a place to be buried. And when those in the society or in the church would come to them, in the, in the temple would come to them and say, could you please take care of your parents? This is one of the commandments to honor your father and mother. The person would say, I can't. I made a vow before God. Now, any reasonable person in this moment would have said, are you kidding? You can't vow to God to break his own commandments. But what would happen instead is that this person would take this conundrum and bring it to the Pharisees and say, what should I do? I know I made this vow. I'm using all the money, but it's supposed to not be, I don't know. What should I do? And rather than being wise and saying, listen to the commandments of God, the Pharisees said, yeah, sorry for your parents. You really should just leave them alone and have nothing. You are consecrated. You have consecrated your stuff to the temple. And Jesus points out this practice. And says to those who are not only teaching this and believe it to be good, but holding people to account that they avoided the very word of God they pretend to be an expert in. And in response to this, he does not hold back. He calls them hypocrites in verse 7. He says that Isaiah, the great prophet, their own prophet, was not prophesying about the nations out there, but he turns it on its head and he says, actually, and remember when Isaiah was prophesying about people like this, I'm about to tell you, it's you. He says that this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He's reminding them, this is not just the wilderness generation, this is you here and now. He says, in vain do they worship me. He calls their worship vain. He says that they have taken the commandments of men and bound conscience where they should not have bound conscience, teaching them as doctrine. The text goes on as Jesus pulls away from this set or this confrontation. And I love verse 12 because the disciples still don't quite get it. The disciples constantly give hope to people like you and me in the New Testament. They don't understand. In fact, they make him aware of something that they think maybe he missed. They say in verse 12, "Uh, remember all that stuff about hypocrites and vain worship and that their hearts were far from you? Did you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard you saying that? (laughs) Can you imagine being Jesus in the midst of this? It's like uh, one time when I was riding with my dad and we ran out of gas on the interstate. And he is just fuming and he's just like so embarrassed but not going to admit it. And he's got to get out and he's legitimately just going to like walk the mile and a half to get to the thing. And so we're sitting there. It'd be like me from the back seat after hearing my mom and dad go back and forth and fuming from my dad and there's nothing there. And he gets out of the car and he's just about to walk. It's like me rolling down my window and saying, "Um, Dad, did you know that we're out of gas? He'd have said, duh, or like, you think? So that's, that's what I feel like if you had to put two words on the, the feeling here is you think. And then he doubles down further. This is how much he knows the Pharisees were offended. He says, I wanted them to be offended. In fact, he says that every plant my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. He says they've been planted by someone else, not God. More than that, they're in danger of being rooted up. They're on a path to destruction. Then he says, ignore them. In fact, just ignore them. Leave them alone. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. So the context and the characters of the story are clear. Jesus is intending to point out that those who were most responsible for the worship of God have completely missed it. And he is described as one who has come To re-examine what is most important. Peter, Peter says, I don't want to be someone who doesn't get it. Please explain it. And Jesus uses a very graphic illustration. He says, these Pharisees are so worried about what you touch and what you put into your mouth, thinking that that is what defiles a person. But it's the opposite. That those who are in the know, those who follow the God of the universe, should care more about what comes from the heart Coming out of the mouth rather than going in. I like to think that he chose this graphic illustration on purpose. Because he says, let me tell you what I think about the Pharisees. You know how it goes into your mouth. This is how important that is. It comes out. You can take that as far as you want. But I think it's a, I think it's a very intentional statement from Jesus. About just how dumb this teaching is. And he wants to recenter them on the heart, to ignore or to put away the fear that what is the worst thing in the world is all of those things out there, and to begin to examine once again what comes from in here. And so, what I want to do now, in light of this teaching, what we just read, is to be careful to consider the shape of and the seriousness of man made tradition because it is not small. Jesus says that what is at stake is being rooted up and destroyed. So let's not be like those who so easily dismiss others as being the rule makers and the rule fathers followers. We just may be tempted ourselves to have a set of house rules. Even as easy as it is to see someone else's house rules. I think it's one of the maladies of the human heart post-fall is that we so easily see the faults of others, but for us, well, we're just living. We're like the fish that says, what's water? And so we should consider how easy it is to fall into man-made traditions, to teach as doctrine the commandments of men. And then I want to call us back to what Jesus says is the heart of true worship. So let's look at man-made tradition. And I think it has some different shapes to it, some different contours, and these are the things that I'm going to suggest. First, I'm going to suggest that man-made religion as a thing, these doctrines or commandments of men, they have a tendency to be encouraged by and gain steam with groups of experts. I want to say this carefully. In fact, I think the whole Conversation today needs to be taken with wisdom. Because it's very easy to say, oh, this, this person doesn't think that you should study, or you shouldn't be smart, or he doesn't like seminary, or he doesn't want to have experts in anything. No, I value those things. I just want them to be put in their proper place. We should note that with the Jewish people, there were plenty of folks, I imagine, who were God-fearing who were hanging on to the prophets, desiring the Messiah to come, who didn't know what to make of this group of experts that were leading them. The reality is is that this group of experts became so enamored with, as a critique of the Greek culture in the New Testament, with telling one another something new, had such a desire to control, they were drunk with their own power to the point that they began to expand and add to the Word of God. I say all this to to say that many times we believe that we are simply insulated from this sort of thing if we're smart enough. And I think what this reminds us is that smart people are a gift, but we should also be careful with them. There is a delightful simplicity to the Word of God that can oftentimes be made more difficult the smarter you are. There is a history where sometimes the most fanciful and capable seminaries go wayward the quickest. We are not insulated by nor saved from man-made religion simply because we have a lot of smart people who write well and understand words and can say things like, well, you know, actually in the Hebrew, those people are a gift to the church, but they ought to be Understood as intention with the reality that sometimes expertise leads expertise actually leads us away from the heart of worship. I am all for smart people, but I want them to be humbled by the Word of God. I am all for amazing writers who love words and prose and can understand how to turn a phrase, but I want them to be captive by Christ, the living word of God. And many times what happens is is that brilliance and smarts and an ability to explain is is valued higher than the basics of Christian character, integrity, humility. We often put up with far too much because someone is useful or smart or writes things beautifully. I can imagine a a simple, lovely, God-fearing, praying Jewish family listening to the Pharisees sometimes and walking away saying like, I don't know, something smells bad. Like, this just doesn't seem right. And in that moment, they are more of an expert on godliness than those with uh, degrees. So that's one tendency. An overemphasis on and a, a reliance upon the experts. When Christianity or spirituality can only be interpreted through the lens of someone with seven PhDs or the right kind of vestments, we maybe have gone sideways. Another tendency of man-made religion. Man-made religion often loves to take things that are in a category of wisdom and therefore can be different based on context and take things like prayer and listening and patience, loves to create those things and change them from a category of wisdom to a category of binding of conscience. Man-made religion is built on the idea that everything is simpler and easier if we simply have a rule for it. Now, who among us hasn't understood the usefulness of rules? It is very difficult to corral a group of four-year-olds, for instance, unless there are some rules. You can't just say to this crew, ah, you guys figure out who's line leader. No big deal. You guys just work it out. Be wise. Just be wise. What we realize is a set of rules can often be helpful. Because we are finite and small and tired and often make bad decisions, we can set up a group of habits for ourselves that can be useful. I am not arguing against the usefulness of rules. In fact, God loves rules to the point that He gave us an entire law book. However, man-made religion creates a tendency to solve every problem with a hard and fast rule. There is no longer areas of wisdom. There is only God said... Yes, or God said no to everything. And rather than being careful to bind conscience, I believe that those of us who are human beings ought to be careful to bind the conscience of God's image bearers, that that should be left to God himself, not not us. But man-made religion tends to take on this task with delight and joy to bind conscience wherever it can. A third tendency. So there's a tendency of groups of experts somehow creating more of an issue in this area. There's a tendency to bind conscience where conscience should not be bound, where you should say, I believe that's wise. I believe that's best for you. I believe that I can see this clearly. But you should not say, do this or you are anathema to God. And that man man, religion tends to do this, whether in force by a sort of Actual written down law, or simply by the way that we are treating one another. A third tendency then man made religion creates an ongoing inability to see what is important. When everything is that important, you lose degrees. And so a person who is in this world tends to enter into situations that need grace and give law, situations that need law but give grace, situations that need a huge response, often they ignore. And things that are very, very small become mountains. This is what the Pharisees did. They rush into Galilee, where Jesus, who is the king of all creation, is healing people legitimately by the touch. And you know what they think is important? They call a conference call and want to confront the guy about a few of his disciples' bad hand-washing habits. They have entirely lost the forest for the trees. They are unable to parse out what is really important. The cacophony of all of the rules have been so complicated that they cannot see degrees. Now, to be able to see degrees is a spiritual task that is a gift of God. But it should be evident when we begin to constantly major on the minors. I'm going to give you a a sort of tangential example that might sort of get to the point. My mom listens to these messages, so maybe we'll put up the one where we cut it out or something. I guess, you know what, I already threw my dad under the bus with a grown-out-of-gas story. Why not my mom? So one time as a family, we watched and considered the story of the Amistad. It became a movie about the early slave trade from Africa to the U.S., Described the absolute horrors, first of man stealing and selling on the continent of Africa, then their transport from that continent to ours, the absolute horrible conditions that they lived in for months, sometimes waiting at sea with nothing to eat, disease ripping through entire communities, families separated, the dead laying for weeks amongst the living only to be on a new continent wherein they are resold and given basically no agency or hope for a future of life. We talk through this as a family. We watch the images of this. And there's a moment where we're sitting and we're just in silence, just sobered by this reality. And then my mom, who is notoriously modest, to the point where if she could wear a nightgown with another nightgown, and still apologize to people for having seen her like this. She breaks the silence of our sober moment of the Amistad, and she says, can you just believe that, the horror of that? We said, I know, Mom, I can't believe it. She said, having to be naked like that? End of comment. That's all she took from the whole thing, not the stealing of people, not the typhoid, not the dying, the separating of families, none of the agency being gone, they're being treated like an animals. She just could not imagine being forced to be without clothing for even a small period of time. She said, oh, the horror of that. You see, the point there is that my mom had taken a good principle Modesty, but it had become inflated to the point where she was unable to see degrees. And man-made religion oftentimes is an exercise in insisting upon what is small while ignoring what is big. Because they have an unable to see. Another tendency of man-made religion. It tends toward hypocrisy. Because oftentimes, those who are making all the declarations of binding conscience, it's so complicated, and there's so many of them, they can scarcely remember what they've said, let alone followers keeping track of all of the changing rules. So inevitably, we teach beyond what is able to be lived, and inevitably, we contradict the law of God itself, because we are not God, nor are we commissioned to make commands. And this is what Jesus points out. He says, you have created a kind of hypocrisy, It's impossible for someone to follow your commands and God's command because they're in conflict with one another. So man-made religion has a tendency to not only create hypocrisy, but to foster it. And no one points it out because to point it out would be to break the whole system. And this is a tendency that all who desire to worship need to be aware of. Now, I wondered how much I should meddle this morning. Because I said, let's not be like those who say, yeah, can you believe that? We can point out the man-made issues of the Pharisees who created whole books of fences around fences around fences. We can say, oh, meat offered to idols and washing of hands and ceremonial sacrifices. And it would be easy to ignore our tendencies. So let me offer just a few areas by way of wisdom, not command, and not conclusion, but category, that I believe often I've experienced in my life a tendency for people to be animated by something that could be an area of wisdom, especially for them, but should not probably be binding on the conscience of all. I believe that we have a tendency to argue about forms of worship styles of music, singing or not singing, standing or sitting, drumming or not drumming, that has the force of treating one another as anathema to God. I've attended a worship service where during a particular song that someone insisted that should not be sung because it wasn't in a hymn book, they stood in front of the whole congregation with their fingers in the ears like this. Imagine bringing someone who is destitute and having a difficult time and convicted over their sin, bring them to your worship service to describe the grace and love and joy of Jesus and realizing that everyone there is so worried about what's being sung in worship that they're having to do this and can't even listen. So worship areas. Now again, I'm not going to apply this for you or bind your conscience in some way, but my sense is that we could be just as guilty as the Pharisees and this has been in my lifetime. I believe that people should be animated about worship. There is a wide berth of discussion that should happen in it. We ought to be careful, though, not to teach as doctrine the commandments of men. Let me add in a few other ones. Alcohol and tobacco has been an area of wisdom, restraint. Yes, but teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, no. In fact, it has been the one area in my lifetime where I can imagine and remember someone Treating me as if, as if this passage were still true. Which is, at a wedding ceremony, I had a cup that had water rather than a bit of whatever the champagne was for this toast. And the person came up to me afterward and essentially said, I'm so glad you're not defiled like the rest of them. And I remember thinking, yeah, but last night I was with my cousin at his birthday party and I had some of his margarita. So how could I both be simultaneously one day defiled and the next day not defiled simply by what went in my mouth? In other words, what I felt when this person said this was, I don't know who you're worshiping or what your religion is, but it's very fragile. It's just very, it can be changed that quickly just by like too much NyQuil or something. You know what I mean? They just felt very odd to me. So I think worship wars, I think alcohol, tobacco. I have tended to see over especially the last 20 years that educational options have become this area for many, many people. You should care about education for your children. You should determine before God what is most wise. You should help others think through that. But we should be careful not to teach as doctrine the commandments of men. And again, I'm not solving this problem for you. I believe that you could pick any one of about eight or ten political questions. How should a country be formed? Who should vote and how should they Vote. Vote sorry I slipped into Canadian there a little bit (laughs) these questions are massively important and Christians should engage and think carefully and desire to live wisely but we should be careful not to treat as doctrine the commandments of men I believe use of spiritual gifts often falls in this, this realm as well I could think of you could probably think of other ones The point is, I don't want to teach a sermon like this and have all of us walk away saying like, yeah, I'm so glad we're not a Pharisee. You and I have in our hearts a tendency to want to solve our worship problems with rules. Everyone does. And we want to be able to know if someone else is okay or should be shunned based on rules. So we want to draw them places. But Jesus says, be careful because these tendencies lead to vain worship and hypocrisy. You can get to the point where you have actually transgressed the law of God rather than following it. We need to see the shape of man-made religion, be careful concerning it, and understand its seriousness. My desire would be that I bring to bear on my own life and my own heart and anyone who will listen every word that God has uttered. For his glory and for your sake, for the good of your soul, I would want to bind your conscience by the blood of Christ. That there is no other way to heaven, no other name given among men by which we must be saved. These things we can bind our consciences on. But I want to be careful to not control and make things tidy, but be unwittingly leading you in vain worship. If that makes sense. And I know that there are a thousand conversations. This whole discussion takes wisdom. But just because it may be hard doesn't mean that it is not to be taken seriously. Now, what is the response to this? How do we change it? Should we be like Peter and say, "Um, okay, but explain. How do we do this well? And that is, I believe, we need to consider the heart of true worship. And I mean heart there, both as the center, of course, and the literal command of Jesus. He says that we should be more paying attention to what comes out of our mouths than simply the things that go in. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. I think all of us have an instinct to be vigilant. We want to care about something. We want to yell about something. We want to see something clearly and with certainty. And I have good news for you. The Bible tells you something that you should feel that way about. I think what happens is we often misapply it. So the question is, what do we keep with all vigilance? I keep the seminal pride with vigilance. I keep a style of music with vigilance. I keep food with vigilance. We all are animated by things. This is good. The question is we should be asking, or the question we should be asking is, what am I vigilant about? And if you need a place to put some vigilance, Scripture gives you a good place. Keep your heart with all vigilance. What someone else does, what someone else doesn't do is less important than what you are experiencing from the depth of your being. When the Bible uses the word heart, it doesn't just mean the beating organ. It does mean that. It doesn't just mean the sentimentality of feelings. It does mean that. It also means our guts, our courage, the thing we stand on. Our heart means our rhythms, our habits, the things that form us. Our heart means our wills. The things that we stand up against. And this says, keep your heart. That place of your being with all vigilance because from it flow the springs of life. Jesus says that we ought to be careful and pay attention to the things that we are harboring. Listen to the narrative of your heart. What are you longing for? What are you hating? What are you fearing? What are you wishing? What are you wanting? Because the moment you give up vigilance there, all the vigilance in the world elsewhere means nothing. The Pharisees and the scribes were vigilant. Some of the most vigilant. Admirably vigilant. And Jesus says they have vain lives on the path to destruction to be pulled up. So let me encourage you to pay attention to your place of desire, the place of your affections and your habits. Because what is most important about you is the center of your being. And I want to encourage you as well that by paying attention to your heart, I am not saying get rid of all the rules. There may be some rules you need to cast off with the joy of Jesus. Jesus. But this is not an either-or sort of thing. In fact, I would say that it is only those who have their heart in a good place who know how to obey. Only those who have an affection from their soul for for God are going to see that His commandments are not burdensome. There was a period of time with one of our children, we had a very, very rough period to the point where it kept Sarah and I up at night and we shed tears and we worried and we were wondering, we thought, how in the world do we fix this? We sought the the prayers of our parents and friends and counselors and read things. And this kid now is amazing. Somebody asked me a couple weeks ago, hey, I remember that period of time and you said that, how did you fix it? How did you solve it? You know, I think what they're asking is, what rules did you put in place that finally got the thing to, because anyone who's parented anybody knows how difficult this is. And you know what I thought to myself a couple weeks ago when someone said that? Um. Uh, their heart changed. Uh, and then like overnight, half of our job and parenting went away. I don't, I don't know what happened. You see, because a willing heart obeys naturally as if breathing, but an unwilling heart, an unkept heart, a heart that is harboring bitterness and desire for self and pride and anger, you can put all the rules in the world. You can bring all of the parliaments of the world to concoct a set of rules to keep the person in order and it will not work. But everything changes when the heart changes wow, how did you get your three-year-old to use the bathroom like that? It was, I thought it was months and months and months in terror. And you're like, oh, no, it was. We had charts on walls, and we had new clothes, and we had toys, and I gave them a thousand dollars a week if they would do this. I mean, our whole life was being sacrificed for this. What changed? And you know what changes, honestly, is uh, one day they got up and they wanted to. I, they just wanted to. Let me tell you the miracle of Christianity. The miracle of Christianity is not that we've figured out the best habits of living or the best man-made religion. The miracle of Christianity is that Jesus died and rose again to send his spirit so that from the inside out you would experience renewal. What Christianity is often viewed at, as by those who don't understand, is a set of people who are trying to conform from the outside in. If we dress a certain way and we walk a certain way and we do a certain way, then eventually we'll earn our way to the love of God. The opposite is the truth. Christians are those who have experienced, tasted, and seen the love of God and internally are being renewed. Therefore, we begin to change. That is the heart of worship. You need the commandments of God, they are binding, and every word uttered from Him is life itself. But in order to cherish those words, You need the work of the Holy Spirit having made you a new person. That's why Corinthians says that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. Jesus came not to be a better Pharisee, not to say, scoot on over boys, my house rules, our changes are better, but instead to send us back to the heart of God, to offer and to give to us new spirits. And to settle for anything else is just playing church, which we should not want to do, in case you didn't know. So, how did anything good happen over the last 10 years of the church? I don't know. I don't know. People wanted to follow Jesus. They wanted to worship. They'd come on Sundays. They wanted to read their Bible. They wanted to care for one another. They're hurt terribly. They wanted to forgive. They don't have quite enough, but they want to... To get more of who Jesus is? This is the heart of true worship. Let's pray.